Before we dive into today's show, we want to know what you think of the podcast at DC and get your ideas for the topics we should be covering going forward. Whether this is your first time tuning in or you're a seasoned listener, go to tinyurl.com slash the podcast at DC. There you'll find our listener survey. Your feedback will help us improve our content and production quality, and it'll also allow us to better serve district residents. And now for the episode. Welcome to the podcast at DC, hosted by The Lab at DC. The Lab is an applied scientific team in the executive office of the mayor for the District of Columbia. We use science to learn what works for Washingtonians. I'm your host, Sam Quinney. On this episode of the podcast, I'm talking to John Abowd, the U.S. Census Bureau's Associate Director for Research and Methodology and Chief Scientist. He has led the agency's efforts to create a new privacy protection system for the 2020 census and for future data products. We recorded this episode with John at the end of 2018. Our then senior data scientist, Peter Casey, also joined us to help translate some of the more complex concepts John discusses for the non-data scientists among us, including myself. John, Peter, welcome to the podcast at DC. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you tell us, for someone who might not be familiar with it, why do we have the census? What does the census do for our country? So the Constitution says that Congress should set up a mechanism for counting the resident population of the United States every 10 years. And Thomas Jefferson conducted the first one in 1790, and it's been conducted every 10 years thereafter. In the pre-war era, the Census Bureau was created and placed in the Commerce Department. And following World War II, the full current Census Act was passed in 1954. We call it Title 13. Its official name was the Census Act. So that is currently, as Congress has directed, the executive branch of the government to conduct the census. And its primary constitutional purpose is to reapportion the seats in the House of Representatives according to a formula that's embodied in a 1941 law called the Hill-Huntington Formula, which basically takes the population of each of the 50 states. D.C. gets electors, but it doesn't figure in the formulation for well, reapportioning the House of Representatives. <laughs> I know you know. I'm just making sure that people understand that yeah. I know too. <laughs> so that's the constitutional purpose. The other statutory purpose is to provide data at sufficient geographic granularity to be useful to the redistricting offices of the 50 states so that they can redraw every legislative district, the congressional districts, their state legislatures, county governments, anything that falls within that state following the decennial census, and they're expected to redraw them under Supreme Court scrutiny according to the one-person, one-vote principle, equal protection under the 14th Amendment. In addition, those districts are subjected to scrutiny under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act such that if the legislative body that you're trying to allocate districts for could have elected at large at least one member of a minority that votes as a coherent block, then the legislative districts have to be drawn to allow that to happen too. So if they could have elected two at large, then the two districts have to be drawn with majority minority. That is where the detail in the redistricting mm. data comes from. And it's all race and ethnicity detail. Is that the origin of collecting information about the household's race and ethnicity or the, the original yes. purpose of it? Well, so all the way back to 1790, we have collected information about the race and ethnicity, primarily the race of the people in the household. Hmm. Prior to the Civil War, 
but it was for a very different purpose than after the Civil War. And in between the Civil War and the passing of the civil rights legislation in the 1960s, it was also largely for purposes that were not necessarily beneficial to the racial minorities. But following the passage of the civil rights legislation in the 1960s, it was explicitly used to protect their voting rights in the Voting Rights Act. So there is now an affirmative in the sense of protective reason for collecting the data. There were many historical reasons for collecting those data. Well, before we talk about your work more specifically, we're always really interested to hear about how you came to be in the position that you're in. What drove you to this place in your career and your interest in privacy? So what happened is that in 1998, I was recruited by the Census Bureau to be one of three senior scientists who helped conceptualize, design, and finally engineer what we call the first 21st century statistical product. What we meant by that was all of its inputs were reused data. All of the inputs were administrative records, in this case of state unemployment insurance agencies, or pre-existing surveys or censuses that the Census Bureau had already collected. So that's considered a much more economical way to produce statistics. And it sometimes, and this is one of those times, it allows producing statistics that you couldn't even begin to do with purpose-built surveys. It would be either way too expensive or hard to design the fundamentals. So we did this, and we were all economists. We're like kids in the toy store, right? These are the kinds of data that the profession has been saying, this is what we need to understand various phenomena. And at the time, it was generally thought to be impossible using the methods that were known. So we started inventing confidentiality protection methods and strong ones, modern ones. And what was the question you all were trying to answer or help people on the outside answer once you got past your fascination with just being able to have access to this treasure trove of data? So there's an enormous demand for increased what we call geographic detail or just detail. Granularity is the generic term. Increased granularity and increased timeliness in all of our data products, not just the Census Bureau's, but essentially. There's almost no data product that you see where one of the users doesn't either want it more quickly or at a finer level of granularity. And that's extremely challenging for most statistical systems, especially for ones that rely on designed data, because if you want granularity, then you have to design the granularity into the basic survey. So what we were trying to do is detailed labor market data for very small geographic areas and for rather extensive detail on the side of both the demographic detail and the business detail. So that was challenging from a statistical precision point of view along those dimensions and also from a privacy protection or confidentiality protection point of view. And with businesses, we kind of accept that. We say that if you can see from your eyes that there's a business on this corner, we're not going to relabel a restaurant a hospital because that doesn't serve anybody's use case. But you have to be pretty careful even with a concept like that. There are some things that you didn't learn about that business from the fact that it's an employer business and located in a place where the employees have to be able to access it because that's where they go to work. And those things are confidential features of the data, like what their payroll is or how many employees there are or what their general revenue is. So just because you can see that there's a business operating doesn't mean that all the characteristics of that business are inherently public. They're not. They're protected characteristics. Similarly, you can walk a block in most neighborhoods and confirm that there's a housing unit. That won't give you a particularly accurate map of where all the housing units are in the U.S., but we don't treat the number of housing units that there are on a block as a fundamental confidential 
thing because we need those numbers to administer censuses and we use those numbers to essentially give credibility to the data. We don't say that there are housing units in the middle of water, for example, and we don't say there are housing units in the middle of a giant business enterprise zone that has nothing but commercial applications in it. So those features of the data, if they can be considered public, let you get granularity that's both confidentiality protected but also useful to the users because they can trust that the places where you put resident population are places where people actually live and the places where you put business activity are places where businesses are actually operating. And so what's the history of privacy protection in the census? And I guess even before you get to that, what could someone do if they had this information? What's the risk or the fear or why do we need to keep this information private? So until the 1960s, we used enumerators. And so the enumerator was a government agent on the issue of whether the enumerator was obligated to keep confidential. The questions that he or she asked was material and was debated routinely in the 19th and early 20th centuries. But it was in the 20th century that the privacy concerns really became highlighted. In the period leading up to World War I, there were uses of census data to enforce the Selective Service Act. Those were subsequently prohibited, and the War Powers Act during World War II caused census data to be used to inter Japanese residents. Those were prohibited following World War II by the passage of Title 13 and the section I read, Section 9 of Title 13, which put the first full statutory set of protections that it can only be used for statistical purposes. It can't be released to another government agency. It can't be released as a consequence of discovery in a civil suit. They are only to be used for statistical purposes. And so those very tight confidentiality protections are a post-World War II phenomenon, and they're designed basically to prevent misuse by the government. And other democracies around the world have similar privacy protections on their censuses and, in many cases, date from abuses from World War II. Most European countries have privacy protections on their censuses, and some didn't even conduct censuses for a while because of the consequences of World War II. It's fascinating. Yeah, very interesting. So this work with differential privacy is not the first foray by the Census Bureau into privacy protection. So can you tell us a little bit more about the history of what the Census Bureau has done to protect privacy? Sure. So the technical term for this is statistical disclosure limitation. At the Census Bureau, we call it disclosure avoidance. This is a set of mathematical techniques that attempted to ensure that certain kinds of attacks would fail. And the easiest one to explain is a classic subtraction attack. So if an agency publishes two tables and the difference between those two tables is one or two, but usually one specific entry in the database, then that subtraction attack exposes the data of that entry. Now, the literature developed in a way that the statisticians doing it understood. But there was always this folk principle in that literature, basically that says you shouldn't be publishing statistics that let somebody make too accurate an inference about a particular person or business in the data. As it was usually stated by people who couldn't prove it, you can't publish statistics that allow you to make any inference about a person or a business in the data. It wasn't until the cryptographers came along and showed how to make that mathematically formal and then proved an impossibility theorem. So it is impossible not to publish statistics that improve your inferences about a specific person because it's a fundamental feature 
of the publication of statistics that they improve your inferences about the people in the population. So you need a different principle. And traditional disclosure limitation methods were too ad hoc to come up with the principle. That is really what the cryptographers contributed to the discussion. They said, you don't have any principles, but here's a principle from cryptography that when modified in this way, gives you a completely coherent mathematical framework for understanding what it means to control the inference about a particular individual in the population in a principled way, and to continue to control that inference even as you publish more and more from the same confidential database. That mathematical toolkit is their contribution. And so that's basically how traditional disclosure limitation was inhaled by and then restated by the cryptographers is when they went to the principles of formal privacy, of which differential privacy is the leading example. One thing occurs to me is that I don't know that all of our listeners will know the difference between the different census geographies. So maybe worth just touching on what are some of the geographies that we're looking at? And in particular, what are we talking about when we talk about census blocks? So the Census Bureau has developed two ways of looking at geographies. One is the way we divide up the country for the purposes of doing an enumeration. And so that's an operational definition. And we used to call those enumeration blocks. We now call them basic collection units. So that's a small geographic unit that you're going to deploy an enumerator staff to and control with the hierarchy of field supervisors and field managers and area census managers. That operational geography definition was beginning in the 80s and then fully in 1990s turned into a tabulation system that began with a tabulation block. A tabulation block is the smallest geographic area that the Census Bureau will attempt to tabulate data for. And the universe of tabulation blocks covers the entire physical United States, including all the states and Puerto Rico, and they're defined in the territories too, although the censuses of the island areas are separate. Puerto Rico is included in the census of the United States, but tabulated separately. So that spans the geography and not overlapping. So they're mutually exclusive and exhaustive. Then you build various things from them. And the first thing we build from them is a tract. The tract is conceptually a relatively homogeneous geographic area, homogeneous in terms of the kinds of socioeconomic things that you think of when you talk about neighborhood homogeneity. Now, they aren't all that way now, but they were initially conceptualized that way, so it's a legitimate way to think about them, that it's about 4,000 people. And so those tracts then aggregate into political units, counties. So sometimes a tract is a lot smaller because the county is smaller, and because it's geographic hierarchy, they have to respect that. Everything that we publish geographical data on can be built from a block, but they don't all pass through the county-state hierarchy. There are other ways of doing the aggregation, but think of a block as like a pixel, and you build images, geographic images, by assembling those pixels. Election districts are a good example as well. So a state does not have to use blocks to build election districts, but the Department of Justice uses blocks to form the districts to scrutinize the districts that are drawn by state. So if a state splits a block, it's not going to be split by the Justice Department when they analyze whether that's an acceptable district. You were telling us a little bit about the difference between how cryptographers think about cryptography and how they think about some of those concepts as applied to data privacy and statistics. And I thought that was really interesting. I'd like to hear if you could tell us about that again. Okay, so the cryptographers basically showed the 
official statistician, something that they now call the fundamental law of information recovery. If you have a finite confidential database and you start publishing statistics from it, you are leaking information about that finite confidential database and you will eventually, within a finite number of published statistics, you will leak the entire contents of the confidential database. Now, that needs some qualifications. If you don't ever publish any statistics about the name, you obviously can't leak any information about the name. If you don't publish any statistics about the address, then you can't leak any information about the address. But we usually do publish some statistics about the address, namely what block or county or whatever that address is located in. So there's information about the address. And all the other characteristics that we collect, those are the bread and butter of what we publish statistics on. Your sex, your age, your race, your ethnicity, and the relationships of the people in the household, to give the examples from the decennial census. So we published 7.8 billion statistics from the 2010 census. There were 308,750,000-odd people in the April 1st, 2010 population that we published statistics from. That's 25 statistics per person. So that's a vulnerability. And that vulnerability, in fact, came to pass. You can reconstruct the confidential database from the published statistics. The fact that you could do a reconstruction of the 2010 census data isn't a violation of Title 13. It's a signal that the confidentiality protection systems were vulnerable to a database reconstruction attack, and they were. So they need to be strengthened. And differential privacy was founded on the principle of being able to control the extent to which you allow the confidential data to be reconstructed from the statistics that you publish. The principle of noise infusion means that when you reconstruct the data from the published statistics after they've been noise infused, you get back some random database that is, in a mathematical sense, distant from the true one in a manner that you're controlling by the parameters of the differential privacy. So if you went through the exercise many, many times and you didn't do it right, every time you reconstructed the database, you'd get the same answer. But if you go through the differential privacy exercise many, many times, every time you reconstruct the database from a different run of a differentially private algorithm, you get a different image of that database and they have variance between them. And that's where the privacy protection comes from. And how much variance those reconstructions have is directly controlled by the parameters of the differential privacy process. In the 2010 census as published, are you saying that it was possible to reconstruct the underlying database using the disclosure protections that were in place for the 2010 census? Let me be very clear about what we reconstructed. We reconstructed the person records not the household records, the person records from the input data set that was used to publish the person-level tables from the 2010 census. Hmm. So for person-level statistics, there weren't 7.8 billion, there were closer to 6 billion. So those are the statistics we start with, those 6 billion. Um, each one of those has an equation associated with it that says the records in the confidential database have to have this property, basically have to add up to this statistic if you select on the right characteristics, okay? So that's approximately 6 billion equations. And in principle, there's many, many more possibilities in a census of population than just the 308 million records that were in the 2010 census. But those equations turn out to greatly limit which of those possibilities could actually have occurred to the point where that equation system is actually solvable. And it solves for a set of records that have a block ID, sex, your age in years, whether you're Hispanic or not, and each of the 63 categories that the race variable from the 2010 census can be coded into. So that's 
a lot of detail. Mm -hmm. And the reconstruction is extremely accurate. It's exact for about half the records. It has no more than one error for more than 90% of the records. And we didn't intend to publish microdata at that level. The extent to which those data can be used to re-identify particular individuals is still an open question, one we are continuing to study. However, in other publications from the 2010 census, we coarsened the geography from a block to a puma, which is a population of at least 100,000 people, because we didn't think it was reasonable to publish that kind of detail at the block level. But implicitly, we did. So that's why there is a necessity to strengthen the confidentiality protections, because if we could figure out how to do it, then that means basically the techniques are in the open scientific literature, and therefore our statutory obligation to protect the confidentiality of the microdata extends to protecting it against techniques that we now can demonstrate are feasible with the data that we had historically released. And so how did you move from the more traditional protections to the differential privacy? There is this popular notion that differential privacy means that people get differential protection, and it's exactly the opposite. Every person in the population gets the same worst-case protection. And that's an important feature of it because historical methods were basically founded on a priori designation of, well, this is a risky record because, for example, this is a single household in that block, or this is a risky record because the revenue from this company is much larger, it's a big percentage of the total. Differential privacy methods consider every record to be a risky record and protect them with the principle that the published statistics shouldn't move very much if I just delete this record and recompute them. But not just for the people who are actually in the population, but any configuration of what we would consider a legal population when we start collecting the data. So all possible populations and all possible people in those populations get the same protection. A computer scientist named Dan Kiefer, who was one of my collaborators in the mid-2000s, told me at about the same time I was going to the Census Bureau to be chief scientist that he would like to take his sabbatical at the Census Bureau, and it coincided with my first year on the job. And I had started on the job informally a couple months earlier and already knew that this disclosure avoidance modernization was going to be a high priority. I'd been told by the director, John Thompson, at the time to make it my highest priority. So we started having discussions, me to Dan. If I make you the scientific lead... Can you design differentially private algorithms that can protect a real census? Uh, we spent several months trying to make sure that before we said that the answer to that question was yes, that there was a reasonable chance that the answer to that question was yes. <laughs> it didn't take that long to decide that we didn't want to try to invent any new technologies. The best available technology was algorithms based on the original 2006 definition of differential privacy. There have been many refinements since then, but the most Theoretical and algorithmic work had been done on the basic definition. So that's where we started, and we're two and a half, almost three years into the effort. The code is already out of my control for that, so that's how productionized it's been. And there's many more queries in the publications from the full census than in the tests, so we have to expand the capability to include different classes of queries than the ones we've already implemented. I think it's a nice place to follow up on something you are talking about before, which I was really impressed with because it's a big priority for us here at the lab, and that's open science and transparency. You were saying that you're going to publish the algorithms that you're using to induce noise into the census data. Tell us about that decision, why you decided to publish the algorithms, how that's different from what the Census Bureau has done before, and why that publication 
one is important and two is not necessarily risky. It's not risky at all. There's two things going on here, but the easiest one to talk about is what I say, the, the cryptography principle that transparency can't be the harm, which in cryptography is called Kirchhoff's principle. It basically says that if you say that something is cryptographically safe, or in this case you say that something is differentially private, then that statement should not be compromised by showing its audience all of the properties, including the actual code that you ran and the parameters that you set that code at. The only thing you should have to keep secret is the equivalent of passwords, in this case, the seeds that you used for the random number generators. And that principle, Kirchhoff's principle in cryptography, is what has made it possible for us to use the internet to do commercial business. You trust when your web browser says it's using RSA security, you trust that your credit card number is only seen by the merchant that had a business-related need to see it because otherwise it wasn't going to deliver the merchandise that you had a business-related reason to get. So you trust the internet because of cryptography systems that have been developed under Kirchhoff's principle. That every aspect of it is public. If there's something wrong with it, either the bad guys or the good guys are going to find out, but the good guys are at least as likely to find out in time to fix it as the bad guys. And that's why we are going to publish the code from the test so that if we have made a mistake, and that's a distinct possibility, you know, it's an elaborate computer program, then people will be able to see that. In addition, Essentially, the accuracy is all tied up in the way that that privacy loss budget is allocated to the different tables. And it's very hard for us to construct every possible use case. But if we give you the code and the parameters and you have other use cases, you can simulate our code at the parameter settings that we used and test your own use cases. And so we're going to facilitate that as well. Does that allow an end user of the data to be able to assess what level of accuracy they're getting in their results? Yeah, it allows them to define their own sensitivity measure to whether the data are of sufficient quality to be used for the purpose that they want. It's our obligation, in my view, this is my personal opinion again, to set that accuracy level so that the vast majority of the known use cases either can or cannot be done. And when they can be done, to say so. And when they can't be done, to say, you used to do this, but we have not allocated enough privacy loss budget so that that's accurate at, say, the track level, you'll want to use higher levels of aggregation. At this point, we don't know which applications we have to say that for, even whether we'll be able to categorize them all by the time we end up publishing. But we've made a, a very aggressive effort to have our users contribute their use cases so that there's an available inventory of these to evaluate. And this is not unusual for statistical agencies. When we have to allocate the $213 million a year budget for the American Community Survey, we don't allocate it so that every statistic that we produce is equally accurate. We deliberately sample more intensively in some areas so that we can get relatively more accurate statistics about those areas than we would have gotten in the absence of that oversampling. And if you're spending a fixed budget and you're oversampling in one place, then you must be undersampling in some other place, and that is precisely the accuracy allocation that's involved here, except it's not a fixed dollar budget, it's a fixed information loss budget. Okay, well, I was about to ask you what lessons there are in what you're doing at the Census Bureau for other government agencies and other governments who are interested, who are publishing data or are interested in publishing data that would be sensitive at the individual level, but they may be interested in publishing more aggregate data. So there's a number of communities of interest here. 
that I know are watching the Census Bureau and me very carefully. I'm only talking as me here. One is, of course, other statistical agencies who have also recognized that there's an increasing challenge to maintaining the confidentiality with these more and more sophisticated techniques being proven mathematically, so you can't deny their applicability. And in addition, there's a large community of data users who have relied on the products that we have historically produced, and we have made a public commitment to continue to produce data products that are similar to the ones that we produced in the past. Thank you for being on the podcast, coming and talking to us as a city government and as a city. And also thank you for the hard work you're doing on both improving privacy for U.S. citizens and U.S. residents, and also for doing it so thoughtfully in a way that can also increase our ability to use the data. You're welcome. I am, as I am fond of saying, just doing my job, but I'm happy to do it. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, podcast listeners. Sam again. Before we run the credits, I want to take just a minute to encourage you to complete the 2020 census. It'll take just 10 minutes or less, but it informs $6 billion of federal funding to DC for vital programs like food stamps, housing vouchers, health insurance, and energy assistance. There are three ways you can complete the census this year. You can do it online, over the phone, or through the mail. And if you've misplaced the unique census ID that you received in the mail, you can use your address instead. So visit 2020census.gov or call 1-844-330-2020 for more information. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the podcast at DC, a production of The Lab at DC. This episode was produced by Nellie Moore and edited by Tim Madden and Danforth Webster. Music is provided by Pure Grease. If you liked what you heard, visit our website at thelab.dc.gov where you can sign up for our mailing list. You should also follow us on Twitter at the lab underscore DC. However you choose to connect with us, you can find more information on our work and stay updated on what we're doing. Until next time, I'm Sam Quinney.